Hello, and welcome to On War, the podcast. For the start of a new year, the show takes a theoretical reprise, exploring the core schools of thought behind the understanding of conflict and international relations. We begin this series tonight with the School of Realism, a product of the post-war world that continues to influence both policymakers and scholars today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back in the new year to On War, the podcast. And for the new year, we're taking a slightly new approach. For the next couple of episodes, we're going to go back to focusing on theory. Uh, we've heard some feedback from people in looking at view counts. It seems that our audience likes to have a look at some of the theoretical components. Um, and so we've gone back to that. And also, uh, at the core of this podcast, of course, is students talking to students. Alison and I are both postgraduate students of well, Alice has actually just got accepted into a doctoral program, so now we're both PhD candidates. So the other thing that happens with the new year is we have um, uni coming back, at least in Australia, and that means we've got uh, some new undergrads will be joining the cohorts and universities all around the world. So it's sort of a good time to be doing something we haven't really done before in the theory episodes, and that's not just look at sort of ideas, but but sort of take it back to some of the basic meta theories, the kind of the schools of thought within international relations, things that we've mentioned in passing around particular ideas when we've looked at, for example, democratic peace theory or liberal war, or in some of the case studies we've examined, we've mentioned these schools of thought, but we've never actually sat down and, and really kind of done an overview of them before. So that's, it's a good time to be doing that and to, I guess, bring it back to basics a little bit. And they really are basics. I mean, this is the stuff you learn in first-year international relations. And I guess what, what Alison and I are really going to try and do in this episode is go a little bit deeper than what you'll learn in your one week or two weeks learning about this these particular schools of thought. And first up, of course, is neorealism. Um, it is really easy to dismiss these as entry points into IR, theories from which one grows and, and develops from and, you know, blazes your own path. But I think Alice and I both went through first year with that opinion. And as we get into looking at our own graduate research, at least I've come back to offensive neorealism, uh, for, for one, um, as well as post-colonial security studies, which is what we'll be doing in a couple of uh, episodes. And really come back to those core theories and are finding that I'm applying them without actually consciously thinking about them in a lot of cases. So I guess this episode is about exploring and sort of deep diving into what are presented as quite basic theories, but actually um, are quite nuanced and could be very useful, particularly to new IR scholars that are joining our ranks. So before we jump too far into that, I guess one of the things that is, is sort of the most basic thing that needs mentioning is why have a theoretical approach in the first place, or why have one of these larger um, overarching schools of thought, particularly when you're dealing with um, historical events or current events, why wouldn't you just stick with a case study? I mean, every case every case is going to have its own sort of unique features and need to be treated as such. So what use are these broader theoretical approaches? What, what do they do? And I guess the, the core thing about it is that the overarching approach is a first and foremost a framework for analysis. It gives you a context to work the case into. It provides a generalized set of assumptions that have been previously established. So from the perspective of, of writing a report or an essay or conducting research, it gives you a starting point that you can have a certain number of general points 
sort of pre-established. You don't have to spend an enormous amount of time building up an entire general theory from scratch. You can say, I am drawing from this because why? And proceed from there. It also allows context for comparison. If you don't have a generalized theoretical framework to work within, how do you compare two different case studies? Once you start having two different case studies to compare, what you're doing is you're comparing them on theoretical grounds because they might be from different parts of the world. You might be dealing with two different groups that because of geography or differences in time periods and so on, never had any interaction with each other and compare them. You need a, a general framework to do that within. And that's what one of the things that these theoretical approaches give us. And conscious of making some of the older listeners groan and go, not this again. The theoretical approaches are paradigms that are reflective of the discourse of academia. It is uh, almost a language that we share as academics that you can sort of work within and have a way of framing your thoughts and framing your position through these worldviews. Now, they're not restrictive. They don't have to be. um, But it gives you a good starting point and it gives you a good way to frame your analysis. Yeah, that ultimately all of these things, although we may present them in a particular way and we may, um, in the next bit when we start talking about what realism really is, talk about core principles, ultimately these things are tools rather than rules. Um, This means that there is sometimes a little bit of inconsistency with them because every academic does tend to create their own subset whenever they start dealing with it. I've been guilty of that. Austin's been guilty of that as well. You wind up, you, you take something that's a screwdriver And you go, well, I need a screwdriver, but I need it to have two heads on it. And so you start academically tack welding on a second head, and now it's your screwdriver, but no one else is going to use it quite the same way. So there is some inconsistency. There's, in fact, a whole career path in academia in almost any of the social sciences just in arguing theory and the finer points within one school. So don't be surprised if there's some things that don't seem totally compatible, but it's a tool. It's something you should be using rather than something you're adhering to religiously, I think. Unless you're a purist. There are purists. But it's important to sort of look at this and realise that we are talking about the real world here, Um, and we talk about IR and international security. I mean, look back to our episode on on terrorism, and and when we look at warfare, we're talking about an incredibly practical um, event in political history and an incredibly practical component of political science and so it's important to remember that at the end of the day these theories are about state behavior but within states again we've said this before there's people right and even though the majority of current policymakers grew up and and came of age in the cold war during the sort of prime of realism and neorealism at universities and academia they are still people and they will still react and make decisions that are outside what you think of as a realist trained political scientist. Yeah, in fact, my master's supervisor said something to me. One of the things that really stuck with me last year in the middle of a a heated discussion about my paper, um, he turned to me and said, Al, no leader or diplomat reaches into their back pocket and pulls out a copy copy of Morgenthau in the middle of the meeting. And that sort of, that's one of those things you've got to consider. These leaders have been educated often in political science or in law and in the basic assumptions, but they are still interacting as people without strict set of rules or operating procedures. These, these theories in the seminal text that we refer to that created them are merely guideposts. They are um, tools by which to shape a form of thought, not to govern what you actually think, what you actually argue necessarily, just to provide a framework within which you can do analysis. It's a philosophy. At the end of the day, it's applied philosophy. So, now we've sort of staked out what a theory is, we probably should get to the actual theory itself. So, 
Today, we're starting with what is, what was for a long time probably the preeminent theory in international relations. It was fairly dominant throughout the Cold War. It is still one of the two kind of competing dominant schools of thought. It's, depending on who you ask, it is still the dominant one or it's fallen from grace and that's the proponents hold it upright as still, this is the only way you do things and the people who don't like it disagree and say it's been a right, the rise of liberalism. But that aside, we're talking about uh, international realism, which is an interesting idea. It's an interesting theory. Like I said, it, it comes of age in the Cold War and particularly it starts really as a, a formal theory with Hans Morgenthau, who we mentioned before. The genesis of it, the roots of it, start in the middle of uh, World War II, but realistically it's it's shaped as a formal kind of school in about 49. Morgenthau's seminal text, Politics Among Nations, is published in 1948, and that's sort of the foundational text for international realism. It draws its philosophical roots in Hobbes. So a lot of these theories often draw back to Enlightenment scholars and different um, competing ideas from the 17th and 18th century. And the reason for this goes back to at the core of international relations and particularly international security studies, which is what we're talking about here is power. We're talking about how it is exercised and we're talking about how it's transferred. Um, that's at the core of all international relations theory. And so that's why a lot of these theories pull back to Enlightenment age scholars like Hobbes um, or like Luke, Luke's, who are actually building theories of power just several hundred years before. So what makes realism realism and there are generally four sort of core assumptions that people will agree that are sort of the four pillars of, of realism if you like the first is that the nature of politics is fundamentally about conflict that doesn't necessarily mean armed conflict but it's a competitive conflict of the acquisition and preservation of power within that the actors that are competing are rationally self-interested so that the foundations of their competition is in maximizing their own utility, in this case power rather than money, although it can be. And that, when we talk about rational state actors, to the outside world, an actor may act in a way that is, seems irrational. But at the core of their own interpretation, it's always about maximizing what that state views as its utility and its ability to gather power that guides its actions. Even if from the outside it looks irrational. And that's sort of an interesting thing to look at because there's one of the key criticisms I myself put forward of realism is the assumption of rationality. But you do have to be sort of considering the different perspectives on what may and may not be considered utility by, you know, from your own point of view. Um, I'd still think that that criticism is valid, but you do have to take into consideration not just swinging around a laissez-faire. So the third key principle is that in the international sphere, politics is anarchical. There are no overarching rules beyond the nation-state. Because of the powers that nation-states wield and the presumption of territorial sovereignty, any international system, and where the different realist um, scholars sit on this sort of varies, but the general presumption is that the base unit and the only really reliable governing unit is the nation-state. Below that, it doesn't really work. They don't have, no one ever really has enough power to be truly influential. And above it, in the international level, international organizations like UN and that are constantly hamstrung by this, both the normative presumption of sovereignty, but also the practical reality of powerful nation states being able to ignore them. And that's the important aspect of this. One of the criticisms that's really easy to level against realism and neorealism, which is the the latter is the focus of this episode, um, is that 
it just ignores the concept of a UN and, and all the rest of it. And therefore, if you look at the UN, you say, well, actually, it helps, and therefore that defeats realism. Realism doesn't say, and particularly structural or neorealism doesn't say, that there are no international bodies that are effective. What realism, and, and particularly structurally realism, says is that these bodies are subservient to the national interest of states. They are not an overarching or overpowering actor in the same way as liberalism. And also, it's, it's worth noting that that idea of anarchy is not anarchy in sort of a, a, a lay use of the word. It's, it's drawn specifically from Hobbes's idea of the state of nature. It's competitive and conflictual, but it's not sort of... It doesn't mean that there's no structure to it. No. There are, of course, still norms that govern state behaviour. There are still agreements between states based in their self-interest. It simply is that there's no above-them body that is imposing law down on them. And so the final point is that the political outcomes are determined primarily by uh, material forces. So this is that it's not so much normative behaviours or normative assumptions that shape what happens, but more the sort of, not so much hard power, but the, the material powers of economics, of military force, of things that are, are, are done, either economically or physically, are what shape international politics, rather than meetings and discussions and treaties. It's about doing rather than signing. And Amir Sharma in 2006 takes this a little bit further and he argues there's two types of power, there's two types of this material. There's your straight material power, which is what you'd expect. It's actually the state's physical force, which is usually their military, tangible military assets. And then there's latent power, um, which Mishima describes as raw potential it can draw on when confronted by a rival state. And this refers to their sort of resources, population, their capacity to rapidly generate and exercise additional power. So if we're going to list sort of the seminal works, the, the not so much core readings, because as Austin was saying just before we started recording this, in your one-week undergraduate introduction to realism class, you usually don't actually get tasked with reading these. But the seminal works, uh, first of all, Hobbes's Leviathan, of course, is the philosophical roots of a lot of the ideas that realism draws on and, and shapes itself from. That's not to say that Hobbes was a realist. That's a bit anachronistic. It, that wasn't a discussion that was happening. But like Locke is to liberalism in the philosophical conceptions, the base philosophical assumptions, Hobbes, Hobbes's Leviathan is to realism. The first, as we mentioned before, the first real codification of it is Morgenthau's Politics Among Nations, The Struggle for Power and Peace, which is published in 1948. That has been, I think it's up to its seventh edition now. It's been reprinted. It's still the standard. It's it's the sort of the core text of classical realism, I'd say. Kenneth Waltz's Theory of International Politics. Um, Waltz is sort of the, the founder, I guess the founder, would you say the founder of neorealism? And he's puts forward balance of power theory and is quite sort of influential in the 80s, particularly is when he really gets going. John Hertz talks about political realism and political idealism, and then more recently we've got Gilpin and Mearsheimer as well. So these are authors you should be looking at if you're interested in pursuing this or reading further. I guess the advantage of going to the foundational stuff, and this is something we're going to talk about further on, is it's often actually much more nuanced than sort of the, the later works drawing on it will be. And this is something that anyone working in the field, any any scholarly field will find, is that when they when you take when you do that process of taking a tool to examine a case or to explore an idea you have, you will strip it down to the bits you need 
which means that often what you find when you have a realist interpretation of X, the actual in interpretation they use of that core theory is usually not quite as nuanced or as comprehensive as these foundational theorists doing pure theory will have made it. So you often get a, a sort of a less nuanced idea of what's going on, but also a much more easily critiqued idea of the theory. If you want a good balance for sort of an introductory text, particularly to structural or neorealism, I would suggest uh, looking at Mearsheimer's chapter uh, in Tim Dunn's and others' uh, International Relations Theory, Discipline and Diversity, uh, which will be on the reading list. Mearsheimer himself um, describing in about 10 pages structural realism and neorealism. So, like all of these tools, there's a real proliferation of realisms. Um, today, where we want to focus specifically on offensive realism versus defensive realism. They're both, I guess, categories of neorealisms would be the better way of doing it? Well, it's interesting. Um, Mearsheimer refers to them both, and so does Waltz, uh, offensive and defensive neorealism as structural realisms. But in subsequent years, other scholars have taken structural realism as a term and applied it to a slightly different form of realism. Um, so again, we start to see the academics changing their tools that Alistair spoke of. But the foundation of both of these issues, I guess, is, is, is this conception of um, the security dilemma, which is one of the sort of implications of neorealism when you have this competition for power. The security dilemma is a situation where you have a group of states and all of them are, as we discussed before, trying to maximize their security, which is power, relative to the other states. So security in this conception is your your relative position compared to everyone else, and that creates a spiral where everyone's escalating their own security relative to everyone else, and it's a, a race. So a classic example that's that's brought up is the First World War and the, the ramp up of various arms races. Now, again, this is a little bit anachronistic and a little bit of simplification, but that's sort of the go-to. I've actually got a quote here from Hertz. Groups and individuals, states and collections of people, uh, who live alongside each other without being organized into a higher unity must be concerned about their security from being attacked, subjected, dominated, or annihilated by other groups and individuals. They are driven to acquire more and more power in order to escape the effects of the power of the others. This, in turn, renders the others more insecure and compels them to prepare for the worst. Because no state can ever feel entirely secure in a world of competing units, power competition ensures the vicious cycle of security and power accumulation. This is, by many neorealists, proposed as the major cause of most wars in history. That's a contentious point. That's one I'm not sure I agree with. I think it's important to look at in, in a broader context. What Alice is referring to there, of course, is security dilemma as a factor of yet another neorealist principle, which is, of course, the balance of power. Now, this is a term that's been taken by lay people and applied to a whole bunch of things. But at its core, what's important to realize here is we're not only, when we talk about states having a security dilemma against others, and particularly in the modern context, we're not talking necessarily about, for example, Thailand invading Indonesia. The security dilemma isn't really there in that case in today's climate with an established hegemon who has influence over both, being the United States and increasingly China. What we're talking about is the relative power being a factor in the ability of one state to employ its influence over the other or over shared resources and therefore weakening the position of the other state relative to the first state 
and shifting that balance. That then increases the security dilemma faced by the second state, who then must build up their power to protect themselves from dominance or influence, as opposed to necessarily just invasion by the first state. And so the differentiation between defensive realism and offensive realism is their take on this problem, the security dilemma. So we'll start with defensive realists, because they were really the first ones to, to approach this and why they sort of take on the term, why Waltz takes on the term structural rather than defensive realism, I guess. It's, it's offensive realism was defined in opposition to this. But the core kind of contention of, of defensive realism is that what, this, what the security dilemma allows for is a bandwagoning effect. If you acquire too much relative power, it suddenly becomes rational for the other groups to gang up against you. And that actually makes it much harder for you to increase your position and thus security. So there's actually a position where too much power actually actively harms your own security. So the defensive realist position is that the rational situation is for you to get enough power to resist external influence, but not enough power to become... A hegemon or a hegemonic threat to others. And a good example of this from recent times is the non-aligned movement during the Cold War, which was a bunch of, in the global south, smaller states that banded together in things like the United Nations to try and exert influence in, com- in I guess, protection against influence from the two major superpowers at the time. This is often the target of critics of realism as it doesn't allow for cooperation, but defensive realism sort of specifically carves out a space for international cooperation in rational self-interest, partially through the bandwagoning effect, but also through an understanding, uh, a mutual understanding between states of the the security dilemma. States, it's assumed that states are actually conscious of this problem. I think that's an interesting point to jump across to offensive realism, though, because the difference really is stark here. Um, Whereas defensive neorealism talks about, as you said, balance. And the the goal is to achieve a balance of power that's suitable to the state. And therefore, most states. Now, some will be unhappy, but, you know, the individual state doesn't care what other people think. Offensive realism, offensive neorealism, which was, of course, originally espoused by Mearsheimer in response to defensive neorealism, which at the time was simply called structural neorealism, takes a different approach. Specifically, it argues that the only way to be secure is for a state to reach hegemonic status. Now... For those of you at home who don't know what a hegemony is, and we've talked a little bit about it, a hegemony comes from a gambit, and a gambit talks about the ability of a, a state or a state body or a hegemon to exert influence over the norms and over the structures of everyone under their sphere of influence. That's where the term sphere of influence really comes from. They're the top dogs, and therefore they get to set the rules, right? In the neorealist perspective, this means, therefore, that once a state requires enough power to become a hegemon, not only will no one attack them, but then they can use that power to start to solidify their position. As an example, the British Empire, or the current, well, not the current, let's say the United States of the early 2000s, because at the moment you've got China. No one would attack the US in the early part of the 2000s, at least a state, because the The power differential was so overwhelming that no one could expect to really survive in the absence of nuclear weapons. I think it's important to note here that offensive realists agree with defensive neorealists that there's no utility in nuclear weapons because everyone's going to die. And so therefore, there's no power gain there because everyone gets reduced to zero. 
This is also interesting that you look at offensive realism as growing out of that post-Cold War situation where you're looking at a hegemonic United States because the the critics of realism, particularly liberal scholars, would argue that in fact what you see in that situation was the fall of realism, the fall of balance of power theory. Offensive realism is as much an answer to liberalist scholars crowing over the resurgence of their ideals in the absence of the the balance of power between the USSR and the United States, as it is a, a, a challenge to defensive realists. It's a sort of a neo, neo-realism. Am I pushing it too far if I say that? Uh, Neo-neorealism. I've seen that term before. I think what's important here to realize is when neorealists talk about system-level theories and they are talking about system-level theories, we're not talking necessarily about a single hegemon, right? There are such things as regional hegemons. And both types of realists, both types of structural realists, argue that conflict is much more likely on the regional scale than on the international scale. A realist wouldn't argue, and a modern realist wouldn't argue, that uh, the US and China, for example, are going to go to war tomorrow, right? Now, Graham Allison, for example, or Gilpin is another, who would argue that eventually there will be a transition of hegemonic power between the rising China and the declining US, which may start spark conflict as the declining hegemon tries to hold on to their power. But by and large, what we're talking about is regional hegemons. As an example, consider the European Union as an intrastate entity, as a hegemon. Uh, Germany within the European Union as a hegemonic regional power. Consider China in East Asia as a regional hegemon. Consider, uh, for another example, Australia in the sort of Southeast Pacific region. We are a hegemon, a regional hegemon in that regard. Now, an offensive neorealist argues that we should always be pursuing more power because amongst all the uncertainty, great powers fear each other. Regional hegemons fear each other, so do middle states. And so therefore, we must continue to build our power, build our power to make ourselves unassailable, mm. at least by those we consider on our level. See, this is this is a key differ- differentiation um, with offensive and defensive realism, because where that continual expansion is necessary for security until it's it's a struggle to become top top dog, and then it's using that power to maintain your supremacy for offensive realists. For defensive realists, and sort of a little bit more unusually for realism, I think in general, is the specific carving out of a space for cooperation between states, and this is in a sort of rational peacetime decision between two major players, particularly two major players within a region or internationally, um, that it's more rational for them to both agree not to be struggling to the next level. So a classic example of this is is arms treaties or um, the agreements between the USSR and the United States about where they wouldn't wouldn't place uh, nuclear weapons, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and, and Turkey. And how this is phrased is cooperation as self-help. So it's still bounded within realism's principle of rational self-interest, but it's, this helps me if I can convince them not to do it, not to take this action, so then I don't have to do it and I can invest my resources in more profitable areas. And the, the back end of what Alistair just said is how an offensive realist would approach this. Now, an offensive neorealist doesn't argue that cooperation is never the solution, but does argue that in the absence of cooperation, conquest, or again, we're not necessarily talking about military conquest here, or dominion in terms of other types of power, is a legitimate option. Mm-hmm. Whereas defensive neorealists argue that it's not. Now, it's important here as well to consider 
that the offensive neorealists would disagree strongly with what Alistair termed the bandwagoning principle, which is actually what it's called. Alistair hasn't gone up with that term. And an offensive neorealist like Mearsham would argue that coalitions are often inefficient. And because they're built up of states that are, at their core, untrusting of each other, are weak to a cunning aggressor who can target and pressure individual members of that coalition to pull it apart or to make it ineffective. Whereas for the defensive realists, what they reject is that what they call that competition bias, that presumption that this is always going to be the case between states. A, a classic example of this in economics is the prisoner's dilemma, right? It's always more optimal to suspect the other guy of betraying you because that is, you know, three times out of four, it's going to get the least worst response for you. It doesn't matter that in the prisoner's dilemma, both prisoners cooperating actually is the maximum utility overall. It's too likely that the other guy is going to do it to you, so you have to do it defensively. Defensive realists reject that principle as a universal and fundamental principle. They say that it's certainly possible, but that there are certain circumstances in the scale that we're talking about here. I mean, we're not talking about two prisoners in the thought experiment. We're talking about nations with armies, with um, potentially with nuclear weapons. This is a, a, you know, a classic example of the self-help is in nuclear weapons treaties and embargoes. So cooperation on both sides is actually presumed to be much more optimal for self-help or just straight survival. It is terrifying, and I think that's why we need to come back to the offensive neorealist who would argue that we don't see bandwagon necessarily. Bandwagoning is not a an innocent process. Bandwagoning is a defensive posture targeted at a, at a threat, which is the largest state. Instead, an offensive realist would argue that they're more likely to pass the buck, hoping another neighbour will rise to stop the threat. Consider example as an example here the current situation with ASEAN member states or Australia, where instead of taking a side between the rising hegemon of China, with whom has an increasingly strong economic hegemonic control over the region, and its old ally, the US, who maintains a security hegemony over the region, instead of bandwagoning to one side or the other, what we're seeing is, is them desperately try and walk the tightrope between the two to avoid offending either. And an offensive neuralist would argue that that's much more likely in the absence of a direct military threat than bandwagoning would be. The final sort of key di differentiation I want to bring here that is, and I think one of the foundational differences really when we're, we're, we're drilling down to this, is that perception of fear and threat. So offensive realism deals with capacity. It's you are afraid of what the what you know another country can do to you or what you think you know another country can do to you and thus you need to counteract that capacity intentions are sort of don't matter because they're always assumed to be competitive if not absolutely malignant we're dealing with perception not intention here there is this always fog that you must assume is always in place as in the same way as when you walk down the street you can't read everyone's mind as they walk past you a state has no way of knowing the legitimate, certain intentions of another state. Because policymakers, as we all know, lie. So defensive realists, by comparison, deal... They're afraid of the unknown. They're not afraid explicitly about capacity. That's, that's something you can quantify through analysis and intelligence and so on. What defensive realists are more concerned about is intention and probability. What, you're, what another state is most likely to do with that capacity rather than the extant threat of, threat of capacity itself. To put it in a sentence, offensive realism deals with possibility, defensive realism deals in probability. 
it's a mass generalization, and you'll find all sorts of different lines between those two extremes. But I think that's a good sort of a good sort of central point of differentiation between the two. And as we come to the conclusion of this episode, it it might seem to the to the listener that we're we're splitting hairs, um, and to an extent we are. But again, this is academics, and these are positions that are that are strongly held. And so we have defensive neuralists say things like we're dealing in pos- probability, and you're dealing in possibility, and therefore we're right. Yet people like Mearsheimer argue that defensive realism is a flawed concept, and that's why defensive realists like Posen. Uh, Snyder or Van Evra have to transition to domestic level theories, other theories like organizational innovation or militarism to explain aspects of which they apparently or allegedly, according to Mirshama, cannot explain purely with defense realism. So even though to to us and to, to other listeners who are outside this field, it seems very similar, well, with all academia, people are quite territorial of their patch of land. And so that's worth considering, particularly when you read some of these articles. Sometimes you get some fun asides as one academic will throw mud at another academic in another school, which is always interesting to find. The final point, I think, to look at, and we'll be doing another, at least one more episode um, within the school of realism itself before we move on, but the whole, the overarching sort of meta-narrative of realism is a very American position. It is a theory that comes from um, American universities, um, Morgenthau working in uh, as a German, but working in America, and he himself in his books notes the transition from being a German lawyer to an American political scientist. He makes that differentiation himself in in his books. So it is a very American position. So some of our Australian listeners and some of our European listeners might be sitting here thinking this foundational principle of competition and power and individualism, which is sort of what this is an extension of doesn't fit with my idea of, of myself and my idea of the world. That's because that's what it is. Realism stems from the same sort of individualistic self-help roots as neoliberalist economics in the American tradition does, um, American traditions of capitalism and American traditions of individual political behavior in the domestic sense, the idea of, of libertarianism. And it's only in the last 10 or 15 years that we're starting to see English translations of scholarly works along similar power lines come from places like China, Japan, Korea, and the like, where we're starting to see different cultural interpretations of things like balance of power, things like the security dilemma. They aren't always called that. Mm. Um, So it's interesting to view some of this stuff occurring. For example, Graham Allison, who spent a long time in in China, but he works at Harvard, um, who's speaking on uh, hegemonic conflict, makes the point that there's a very different interpretation of what's happening here. In China, there's a very different interpretation of what power means, how a power is exercised, what a great power is. And so what else is pointing out is, of course, that IR as we know it is quite Western and quite US focused in how its terminology works, how its discourse works. Mm. And that comes through in realism and neorealism, probably stronger than almost any other form, bar, of course, neoliberalism and um, liberal war theory, which we've spoken about previously. But realism is the archetypal American school of political science. Oh, yeah. There's a reason that it's linked to game theory, which is next session, next episode, and the Rand Corporation. These are all very mm. American institutions. And it grows up in that American conflict of, of the Cold War, the American-led West in the Cold War. Yeah, the American so, interpretation of the Cold War. Okay, here's a good concluding statement, uh, or a good concluding question, just because we are starting to run out of time. And where do we stand? This is something that I think frustrates 
um, some undergraduates, particularly when they're dealing with their lecturers who never seem to take a stance on anything. Um, we don't have to play to that. This is our space. We can say what we think. So you're working now more and sort of you found yourself unconsciously working with offensive realism. Do you consider yourself a realist scholar at all? Um, no, I think that it's, it's important to recognize what paradigms we're working within, um, but not be constrained by them. Certainly, I don't feel constrained by what I read in, in Mearsheimer or what I read in Gilpin and their interpretations of the school I find myself working within. Um, however, as you, as you say, I've sort of stumbled into it. I think looking back on how I was taught realism and neorealism as an undergraduate and how we spoke about it at the time, I would encourage people to not dismiss realism as a dead or as a, a, a relic um, theory or as somehow less academically rigorous than the critical schools. You know, there is value in looking at human security. There is value in looking at the more critical and emancipation style um, works or of feminist scholars, for example. But just because there's value in that doesn't mean that realism is flawed to the extent that it's unusable. And I think realism, it's, it's in the name to an extent, that's a bit unfortunate, but it is still reflective of, of reality. It is still a school that you can use as a tool to help guide your thought. And I don't think it should be dismissed in the way that it is in some schools and some universities. I would, I would agree with you that it shouldn't be dismissed. I think as an undergraduate particularly, I took a very contrarian approach. Um, there were times when I was facing a... I would start studying a particular topic for a particular essay, and it would be primarily presented in realist terms, so I would immediately challenge it from the other direction. But then when we were working within critical um, theorists, I would immediately turn around and say, well, realism's not dead yet. I guess the most important thing is to go back to, to what we said at the start of this episode. These are tools, not rules. So what you really should be, what I think is most useful, is to look at the situation and say, what helps me understand this situation the best? Approach the case, find the screwdriver that fits the screw. Don't try and reshape reality to fit the theory. Absolutely. And I think that we undervalue as academics and in, in our community, I think we undervalue scholars that find a theory that works for them and just apply it to the world. You know, if, if your theory helps you understand what you're seeing, what you're writing on, then use that theory for, for sure. But don't be afraid of changing theories. I, I spent most of my undergraduate years working within post-colonial security studies. I still draw on it occasionally. And I think that's valuable to look at the perspective from outside this ivory tower in the West. Mm. I don't think we should be constrained by a theory, but I also think that we should encourage undergraduates to, if you find yourself reading a theory and you think, this really works for me, then run with it. Try it in an essay, see how it works. Try it in, a, uh, in, a, in an article, write a journal article as an undergraduate. There's no reason you can't. No, in fact, you really should. Getting published is really important. Go out there, do it. Try out theories, even when you're told they're no good. Try them out and see what, see what clicks in your own mind. Well, that's all we have time for tonight. As always, this is just the tip of the iceberg, and if you're interested in discussing this episode or any of the others, you can find us on our subreddit or on social media in the links below. You'll also find a link to our blog where we post sources for the episode and further reading, a useful list if you're a student. Next fortnight, we'll have a look at another aspect of realism in the use of game theory, both as a tool for policy and research in international relations. Until then, Thank you for listening, and good night.